invite you uh, to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 9. And the words to which I would uh, call your attention this morning come to us from Matthew 9, verses 14 through 17. It's titled, uh, in, in my copy, the ESV, A Question About Fasting. That's perhaps a question that none of you have ever had, whether you ought to or ought not. It's been pretty obvious. This is God's word as we read it. We remember that it is inerrant, infallible, and authoritative. Let's give attention to it now. Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? And some of your versions may say often. But your disciples do not fast. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of our God abides forever. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come again to acknowledge that these words are not profitable to us unless you put life into them by your Spirit. And so we ask you to send your Spirit into each and every heart. Grow us in wisdom, turn us from sin, and most of all, cause us to love the Lord Jesus Christ as our great treasure, in whose name we pray, amen. Imagine just for a moment uh, that you and I have been uh, invested with a very nice trolling motor. Um, This may not be a treasure for many of you, but if you like fishing, a trolling motor is pretty essential. Uh, A nice quiet one that goes backward and forward. You've got the great pedals on the floor of the boat that sends you back and forth. But imagine also that we have this very nice trolling motor and we are standing with it on the dock. We put the trolling motor in the water. We press the pedal. It spins very quickly. It's quiet, just as promised. But we go nowhere. The trolling motor it wouldn't be of much value for us, would it, if we don't have the boat to go with it? We definitely need the nice bass boat. It becomes a futile activity. Well, that trolling motor represents for us spiritual disciplines that are not joined to Christ. You might have all of the spiritual disciplines down pat. Maybe you fast a couple of times a week. You are very faithful in prayer. Morning and evening, you are on your knees before the Lord. Praise God. You are faithful in the Word and you read it. Even when you get to First Chronicles and you're reading through the genealogies, you do your best to celebrate Adam to Solomon. 
You can be very faithful in all of these disciplines, but if you don't have the Spirit of Christ abiding in you, all of those disciplines have no value. In fact, those disciplines will become for you a source of misery. I think that's a central aspect of what Jesus is teaching his disciples. In fact, the disciples of John and the Pharisees in this passage of Scripture. And it's really simple. The presence of Christ is the Christian's great joy. You see, for the Christian, it is the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ that we long for. It is being with Christ, knowing Christ, communing with Christ that gives us joy and hope. Not having Christ, the prospect of not seeing Him, not being with Him for all eternity brings us misery. He is the center of it all. And that's the point that he is communicating to this cadre of men in our text. Now, what's happening here? Let's let's back up just for a second to get the whole scope of, of this scene. Remember that Jesus, we believe here, is still in Matthew's home. He called Matthew to be one of his disciples, and Matthew obeyed him. And Matthew then said, come Come and enjoy my hospitality. Isn't that one of the things that we find Christ does in a man's life as he makes him hospitable? He goes and he ate with Matthew. And in fact, because Matthew was converted and changed by Christ, all the other tax collectors wanted to go along as well. And so there they are, seated with Christ and feasting with him around Matthew's table. And the Pharisees came along and they said, trying to question Jesus' um, character, trying to rub a little dirt on him, as it were, said, why does he eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? You you see what they're trying to do. They're trying to say, you shouldn't listen to him. You shouldn't fellowship with him. Don't follow this man. He, He rejects the law, but we know that wasn't the case at all, was it? Well, now, some other disciples come along, and they see what's going on. There's feasting going on in this house, and so their question is, why doesn't he fast? We fast. The Pharisees fast. Why don't you and your disciples fast? And so this becomes the context for our next lesson from the Lord Jesus Christ by the pen of Matthew. And The first thing that we notice in verse 14 is that men, maybe we would change this and say that the heart of man seeks its joy in ritual. Men seek joy in ritual. Notice in verse 14 what happens here. Then then perhaps as they are feasting, the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast. So uh, apparently what has happened is some, some followers of John the Baptist had formed. Now, if we were to go back in the scriptures to Matthew 4, verse 12, 
you'll read there that John had been imprisoned. John's in jail at this moment in time. And so what we don't, what we don't know is, was John busy developing disciples and followers for himself? Or is this sort of just a, a group that formed on their own? They saw, they saw John who's uh, clothed in hair and he's uh, robed with this leather belt and he's eating locusts and honey. And perhaps some men observed him and said, that seems like a good idea. I've always liked locusts. Well, whatever the case may be, uh, this group of followers formed. And they continued on even after Christ ascended. So that Paul... In Ephesus, all the way over in modern-day Turkey, we're way away from Jerusalem now, Paul encountered some of John's disciples there. It seems from this text that they had adopted the Pharisaic pattern of fasting twice per week. So they say, why do we fast and you don't. And what we see from this, this passage, I think, is that there is, there is in the heart of man sort of a love for what we call asceticism. You, you know what that is. Asceticism is, is all, all the external trappings, all the ceremony, all the lights, the smells, and the sounds. We love that stuff. When you think of going to the, uh, when the county fair rolls around, what do you start thinking of? Oh, corn dogs on the midway. And the taste of a funnel cake, or three, whatever the case may be. But we are warned about bringing those things in and applying them in a fundamental sort of way to Christianity. Uh, listen to Galatians 4.3, in the same way Paul wrote. When we were children... We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What, what are the elementary principles? Well, he kind of answers that, I think, in Colossians 2. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Hear what he says. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. Listen, he says, they indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You see what he's saying? Paul said a similar thing to Timothy. He said, look, exercise, that's of some value, but godliness is of great value. And so there are men uh, who said, I want to grow spiritually. So what, what do I need to do? Well, I need to make my body weak. I'm going to beat it. I'm going to fast. I'm going to starve myself. This was the case in the Middle Ages. When monasticism and monks and nuns came about, what, what were they doing? Well, they're starving themselves, taking a vow of poverty. Why? Because they believed that through those things, their ability to grasp spiritual things would be strengthened. Paul said, 
Actually, they don't have any value. Men love asceticism. And I think there are two ways that you and I can, can use or think about the indulgence of the flesh with reference to worship. One way is we think that, that starving myself is going to bring me closer to God. Just applying these principles will bring me closer to God. If you're on Facebook, you might have seen a program called Exodus 90. It's been all over my feed over the past few months, I think. It's a program for men who want to grow in godliness. Well, listen, listen to the rules of Exodus 90. It's prayer and asceticism and fraternity are the rules of, of Exodus 90. It says, take short, cold showers. This is for your spirituality. Practice regular, intense exercise. Get a full night's sleep. I don't object to that. Abstain from alcohol. Abstain from desserts and sweets. Abstain from eating between meals. Abstain from soda or sweet drinks. White milk, black coffee, and black tea are permissible. I guess that's from uh, Revelation 24 or something. Abstain from television, movies, or televised sports. Abstain from video games. Abstain from non-essential material purchases. Only listen to music that lifts the soul to God. Only use the computer for work, school, or essential tasks. Only use mobile devices for essential communications. Cut out non-essential texting, app, and internet use. Take Wednesdays and Fridays as days of fasting. Regulation upon regulation upon regulation. Listen. Suggesting to you that the good things that God has given to you, like wine or desserts or sweets or eating between meals, snacks, that somehow those things have become evil. No man should call evil what the Lord has called good. But there's another way that we sort of appeal to the flesh. You think about worship. When we think that if we want to have a real and meaningful worship, what do we call it today? experience we need the lights and the sounds and the big screens we need all of these things well this is just the opposite isn't it it's still an effort to think about the flesh in reference of how we get to God we are ascetics by nature we we want those things but Jesus, one of the things that he teaches us this, in this passage is that those things in and of themselves are not going to do anything for you. Notice the next thing that we see. Not only uh, we find that men are by nature, men love ritual, but Christ shows us that, is that the substance, the substance of Christian joy is, what would you fill in the blank there? Christ. The substance of Christian joy is Christ. Verse 15, Jesus begins to use some illustrations for us. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. In the original, Jesus asks this question in the negative. He says, 
the sons of the bridal chamber are not able to fast while the bridegroom is with them, and then it would be implied, are they? He wants you to answer. Can, can they fast? Would that be appropriate? Now, what you understand is that in Jewish custom, there were certain times of year or certain moments, maybe even in your own life, where it was considered inappropriate to be sad. We went through Esther uh, not long ago. And one of the things that happened when God delivered the Israelites from a certain death is that they instituted the festival of Purim. And it was to be a time of feasting. It was to be a time of a festival, of joy, of lights, of remembering the good that God had done for his people. So that it actually became considered very close to a sin if you showed up to a Purim party and you were sad. Well, Jesus is teaching a very similar thing. It's not right to be sad on some occasions. Well, what is this occasion? Well, it's the occasion of a marriage. Jesus uses this illustration to refer to himself as the bridegroom. And his disciples are the sons of the bridal chamber. They are his assistants. Well, this is not a new illustration. In fact, it is one that God has used throughout the entirety of redemptive history to refer to his relationship to his people. I want you to turn with me, if you've got your Bible, to Exodus chapter 19. I know that you, you are aware that Exodus chapter 20 is the place where God gave the law, but God's covenant with Israel is actually inaugurated in, in chapter 19. And I want you to notice just some language here. We'll pick up reading in Exodus 19 verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, so we're three months out of the Exodus, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. They're camping, did you get that point? While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel. I want you to pay very careful attention here. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to not this mountain, not this place, not to Moses. I brought you to Myself. I brought you to Me. As we go on, through the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, God will draw on this imagery as of Israel as his beloved bride. Let me just give you Deuteronomy 33, 2-3. The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us as a bridegroom. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the ten thousands of his holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people 
All his holy ones were in his hand, so they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. Uh, in Jewish interpretation, this is a picture of God coming forth as the bridegroom to receive his bride to himself. Israel wasn't a faithful bride. And so God gave them a writ of divorce in Jeremiah chapter 3. He said, I put you away. But he gave them this promise in Hosea 2, verses 19 to 20. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice In steadfast love and in mercy, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. You see what he's doing here? What God is doing is he is utilizing human imagery, human institutions, things that you can relate to so that you can understand the depth of his love for his people. How does he think of you as his bride? So that Paul will pick up on this imagery in Ephesians chapter 5 and say, you are the bride of Christ. Jesus uses the imagery here. He reminds us that weddings, weddings are an occasion of great joy, not a fasting, not mourning, not restricting yourself, not afflicting yourself, not starving yourself, but feasting, rejoicing. And this joy is given to the sons of the bridal chamber, the followers of Christ. They can't go sulk in a corner. That would be to put fly in the ointment. Now, notice that Jesus said there would be a time for fasting, didn't he? Go back to the text with me and let's look again at Matthew 9. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast. So this is either a reference to the time when Jesus was crucified and He was rent, as it were, away from the disciples, perhaps to His ascension. And so there was coming a time when fasting and and affliction of yourself would be appropriate, but not at this moment. Why? Because you have me. You have me. And I am the substance of the promises of the Old Covenant. I am what you have been looking forward to. This is the moment. God dwelling in your midst. And this is a source of joy for us as well. We we live, as it were, in sort of the in-between time. We, We don't have the physical presence of Christ now, do we? But are we robbed of the presence of Christ? No. You see, in His mercy, He has sent to you His Spirit who dwells with us now, who enlivens our hearts. Last week, we mentioned the fact that that there is no such thing as a seeker after God. Remember us talking about that. That there are none who seek after God, according to Romans 3. So He has sent His Spirit to enliven our hearts And through His work, we become seekers after God. The presence of the Spirit is the presence of Christ. And that presence is a source of joy. But for the believer, the absence, the present 
absence of the physical Christ is a source of sorrow. And anything that I do to violate His law or to put a distance between me and Him causes me sorrow. Either way, our focus is on communion with Christ. It it hurts my heart just a little bit whenever I hear a Christian say, when I say, how are you doing? Last week we talked about the response, well, I'm better than I deserve. But sometimes you hear Christians say, well, it's better than the alternative. What a sad perspective. This? This is better than what's to come for you? What's your perspective on what's to come? My dear brothers and sisters, right now, you are like a bride in a veil waiting at the back doors for them to open, to walk down the aisle, to look your husband in the face. And the moment that you die, that veil is lifted from your head and you behold your glorious Savior in His beauty. That's what death is. It may be painful, but on the other side of that pain, you behold your glorious Savior, the substance of your joy. Better than the alternative? I think not. Thirdly, not only do we see that the presence of Christ is our joy, but what we see finally rounding out this whole idea that is that ritual without Christ is futility. You think about that. Uh, you think about that um, that trolling motor without the boat. You put it in the water. You're standing on the dock. You go nowhere. The trolling motor has no value to you unless you just like to whip up the water. Jesus concludes here in verses 16 and 17 by making a couple of challenging statements. Let's look at them together. Verses uh, Matthew 9, 16 to 17. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Now, he's not asking you a question. He's just telling you how it is. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. I can't help but see that Jesus is using, continuing to use that sort of wedding Imagery, isn't he? You, you think, what, where's the, where would we emphasize the garment? Well, in the wedding itself, the ceremony. The, the groom would put on special garments, the bride puts on special garments, and the wine, where is the wine reserved for? Well, it's obviously a reception. We go to the reception and everybody's celebrating and rejoicing. Wedding at Cana, Jesus' first miracle was what? To turn the water into wine. But these are challenging statements. What does this mean? But what are you and I to take away from the unshrunk cloth or the old, the old garment putting a new patch on it? Well, first of all, nobody does that. 
Neither does anybody put new wine into an old wineskin. In the instance of adding an unshrunk patch to an old garment, notice that the shrinking of the patch destroys the garment. But on the other hand, putting wine, new wine, into old wineskins, what's doing the destruction? Expansion. So shrinking destroys and expanding destroys. So we've got a a few interpretive options here, as you can imagine. Jesus doesn't tell us what he meant by this. Some see in this the, the comparison of the old covenant and the new covenant. The new covenant comes along and sweeps away the old. That's an option. John Calvin looks at this and he says Jesus is actually protecting his fledgling disciples. They are young and they are immature in the faith and he doesn't want to put upon them some sort of heavy burden. Maybe. It seems to me what is similar between these two illustrations is the result. You notice the similar result? If you put a new patch on an old garment, what's going to happen? Both of them are destroyed. Both become useless. Both become uh, uh, of no use to you. If you put uh, new wine into old wineskins, you're going to ruin them. What happens? Well, in, in, in Jesus' day, um, they would skin an animal, okay? And they would clean it all up. And they would take the whole hide... They might tan it a little bit, but with a tanning solution that wouldn't pollute the flavor of the wine. And then they would stitch up that entire hide and leave the neck hole open. And they would fill that hide with wine, and that would become the vessel that they would carry wine with them. It's going to be a big party. But over time, an old tanned skin does what? becomes brittle and hard. And when the gases let off by that wine, when they, it begins to expand and that skin expands, it's going to rupture and burst and you're going to cry. Why? Because all the wine is on the ground. You don't do that. It results in destruction. And the sad fact is that all the work that you put in, either to sew that patch on or to prepare that wine, all of your work is for no result at the end of the day. It's futile. In the New Testament, when we look at these words, you see that that, that, uh, uh, in Matthew's uh, translation here, Jesus uses the term an old garment, a worn-out garment, one that's uh, filled with holes, perhaps. On the other hand, we've got old wineskins. That term old in the New Testament is often applied to you. Not in the sense of how old you are, I don't mean that. But for instance, in Colossians, again, going back to Colossians in 3, we have this idea. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self like a garment. This is the imagery. You've put off the old self, and you put on the new self. In a similar way, I believe that what Jesus is teaching us is that 
the asceticism, that is the, the, the deprivation, and all of the external trappings, the ceremony, uh, the candles, the showbread, the tabernacle, even the tabernacle itself, all of that was intended as a guide to lead the people of God to the substance, do you see? He never wanted you to put your hope in a lamb, a year old, that was spotless, that had clear eyes and was approved by the priest. That's not where your hope is. It's not in that animal. He didn't give you that for the sake of that. The ceremony was to lead you back to Christ. The substance so that you could enjoy Him, Jehovah your God. And so there are two ways to destroy the joy that Christ offers you in the Gospel. Two ways that you can destroy it. One, you can add a whole lot of ceremony. You could go back and you could go through Exodus 90, that whole program, and you could take out sweets, no more Little Debbie, no more alcohol, uh, no more TV time, no more texting, no matter how many times your wife messages you, are you there? No texting. You can do all that. But if you don't have Christ, none of that will be joy to you. It will be misery. And you destroy what Christ offers to you. The other way is that if you add Christ, but you neglect the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness that He gives to you as the means of approach. If you think to yourself, well, I'm, I'm good enough. I've done all these things. You destroy in your self-righteousness the joy that Christ gives you. He wants you to revel in His grace. That He has accomplished it all. That He, like Jehovah, in the picture that we are given in the Exodus, He has brought you to Himself. Not to a ceremony, not to a liturgy, but to Himself. Why do we rid our sanctuary of all the extra trappings, the colors and the banners and the vestments and the jewels and the crowns and the smells and the candles and all of that? Why do we strip it out? Because it distracts you from the center that is Christ. And you don't get to Him through candles and censers and incense. You get to Him through faith imparted by His Spirit. Trusting in ritual and ceremony, no matter what it is, is going to lead you to hopelessness. The presence of Christ is the Christian's joy. Right now, we are in the rehearsal dinner. We're gathered here in this room and we are enjoying the presence of Christ with us here. And uh, the first Sunday of every month, we feast upon uh, the spiritual presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. But our bridegroom is coming. 
the rehearsal dinner's going to end. And the reception's going to begin. And you know what's fun about the reception? Everybody's there. Your loved ones who have died in Christ will be at the reception. That, with Christ in our center, is our great joy. Like our Puritan and apostolic fathers in the faith, we strip out the ceremony, the ritual, everything that men added from worship in order to focus entirely on the spirit of worship. This is what Jesus said to the woman, didn't he? The day is coming when my people will worship in spirit and in truth, not through relics. Worship is a spiritual activity, not a fleshly activity. It is not a spirit, it is not an experience. And the Christian life, the life that you live every day is a spiritual activity that you live in communion with the Lord Jesus Christ by His Spirit. We focus our meditations upon the Christ who has redeemed us. And this is the Spirit's work. He is focused on Christ. It is His work to exalt Christ. And it is His work to lift the veil of sin from your heart so that you may behold the glory and the beauty and the splendor of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, our great husband, we stand here before you in anticipation. We know that the day is coming when you are going to appear and all of your holy angels with you and all the dead will rise the dead in sin to judgment, the dead in Christ to be received to you into everlasting joy. And we, we long for that day because you're going to change us by your Spirit totally into a glorified body so that our joy, our enjoyment of you will be unparalleled and unimpeded by sin. Lord, we ask that you would hasten that day. But as you call us to wait, help us to wait faithfully. As a bride who waits upon the appearing of her husband keeps herself pure, may we do the same. Would you give us the strength of your Holy Spirit to commune with you? Amen.